going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to open to Romans chapter 9. So open to the book of Romans chapter 9. It's right after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 9 this morning. Um, you can see from your notes I plan to read verses 1 through 8 and make my remarks based on that, but I will change course a bit because I think it's befitting the uh, context because it seems where Paul speaks in, in Romans chapter 9 verse 1, you know we sometimes talk about the, the, uh, the ancient scholars that um, separated the chapters into chapters and verses or separated the epistles into chapters and verses, and we sometimes criticize them and say, that seems to be an odd place to put it. That's not the case here. It seems old Stephanus did very well, but it does seem that Paul is changing course from something he was just teaching on. It was an abrupt change, so I want to bring that out by reading a few verses back in chapter 8 so we can pick up on that this morning. Does that sound all right to you? I'm going to go back as far as verse 28 and try to pull this thing together for us this morning. And so Paul wrote, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, 
who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Father, I would ask that your blessing would attend us this morning in this the reading and proclamation of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you catch the pivot? It's unmistakable. It's like falling off a cliff. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. By the way, he slipped in a little of the deity of Christ right there at the end, that Jesus is the eternally blessed God. But as we enter a new section of the epistle, Paul turns to a less triumphant posture than what I just read in chapter 8. Right? And it's interesting because he's talking about, he's writing to a Gentile church, and he's exalting predestination. And then suddenly he pivots to this quandary in his mind and this regret that those all his life he thought were the people of God were not, or certainly not all of them, and that's the point. And so we enter this new section of the epistle. Paul turns to this less triumphant posture. It seems the apostle is expressing grief in these words. It seems he has a longing in his heart, perhaps even a regret. In fact, his sentiment that I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ makes the longing and regret quite unmistakable, doesn't it? Can you imagine? I'm almost fearful to think he said it. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. That's quite a change from more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. The placement of the lament may come to us as a momentous turnaround from the previous celebration of the elect of God, enjoying an unbroken chain of custody from God's mind in eternity past to our destination in eternity future. Since God conceived you, beloved, you were never not beloved of God. You were never in any danger. That's Paul's whole premise of chapter 8. You can be assured 
that you will persevere unto the end. We who are saved were in fact, friends, never in peril. We were conceived, we were chosen, we were guided and carried and preserved throughout the eons with divine certainty that we would love him who first loved us. It was going to happen. What a thing to rejoice over. Paul has just completed what is perhaps in chapter 8 the most glorious of all proclamations concerning the purposes of God with regard to the salvaged souls of his beloved elect. And we celebrated with him for the last few weeks. And then he writes, we were more than conquerors through him who loved us. I belabored that last week, giving examples of conquerors who were great men. And we are more so than them because we are conquerors in this age and in the age to come. And the we that he refers to in these passages is we believers, we Christians, we the elect of God. He also attaches to this great doctrinal statement a corollary that God's purposes have not changed, not one iota since he conceived them. There was no plan B, no amendments. Since the beginning, since before the foundation of the world, in fact, God laid it out before he put it out there for us to live through. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God chose you and me for the glorious privilege of fellowship with him somewhere in the prehistoric past before even the first words of Genesis were uttered, much less penned, when the only sources for commentary at the time were the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So make no mistake, he didn't have counselors helping him. For no one else was there when the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and gave his first creative command, let there be light. No one else was there. But every one of us who was justified by faith was in the heart of our Father, even in that great initial creative act. So what is Paul regretting? You are saved, friends, because God's plan for the universe is being carried out. Remember, for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, the trees and the hills and the, and the deserts and the oceans and the mountain ranges are crying out for the sons of God to be revealed. And that's certainly a thing to be celebrated, and it should, as all great proclamations of the glory and the power and the mercy of God, bring about a falling to our knees in worship and adoration. Friends, there simply is no other appropriate response to hearing about the gloriousness of our God. We fall to our knees and praise him. However, if... If God's plan from the beginning was to save the members of that ancient Roman church to which the apostle writes this epistle, which consisted of primarily Gentile converts, then what happened to the Jews? The whole of the Old Testament, which, friends, for those people at that time was the whole of the Bible. 
The whole of the Old Testament. The whole of the Word of God. I count 39 books. How about you? The Jews were, until that moment, almost until the moment Paul wrote those words, they were always of primary importance with regard to holy privilege. The Jews were the most privileged people in history. Of all the peoples of the earth, Moses said, God chose for himself a foolish nation. They were the chosen people of old. If God's plan's the same from beginning to end, where's their place? Did they lose it? Did he unchoose them? To them were given the prophets. The prophets went to the Hebrew nation. It was their kingdom and their history that's the subject of all the written word until Paul's time. There's nothing openly said about the church. It's all there, as I pointed out in other, uh, at other times in other series, but it's not openly pointed out. The Jews alone were made privy to the oracles of God. He didn't give the oracles to the Babylonians or the Philistines or the Assyrians. Joseph gave his witness to the ancient Egyptians, but he didn't have the written word. It wasn't written yet. The Jews were the sole recipients of the covenant blessings of their father Abraham. Even Christ himself, the Messiah, emerged from the ancient Judaic bloodlines of the great kings of the great nation Israel. Everything about God's plan was Jewish. And so with all this talk of election, with all this revelry over predestination, And I know everybody's sitting there going, this is the great chapter on predestination. What's Dan doing? We'll get there. But we have to go through these first three verses to get there. Because the Holy Spirit gave them to us through our beloved apostle. Are you with with me on this? It's a strange twist. And so with all this talk of election and all this revelry over predestination, he chose me. With the glorious guarantee of glorification. So much though, he said it in the past tense. The aorist tense. Like it's a done deal. That's what aorist means. It means a done deal. With all this revelry, where are the natural branches of the vine that is Israel? Paul will even say this when he gets to chapter 11. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And he sorrows over that. Even with all the magnificence of the teaching, he took a moment to shed a tear of grief. So when we come to these verses, it seems to some that the apostle is pivoting to a new subject. But is he? Or is this the natural outworking? Is, Is this the humble reflection that is necessary when we celebrate our election? We don't receive it with pride. Receive it with humility. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, as James wrote. So Paul's continuing his mode of thought and doctrine in a logical progression of ideas, or is he? I suggest to you, he is. I suggest to you, he didn't pivot. I suggest to you this morning 
that he's adding a reflection of his heart from all the teaching of his great mind that he gave us in the past few passages. Now, the commentators are across the board on what they think about this. Um, even Calvin said something I, I can't quite grasp onto. Um, it was funny, I was reading the commentaries of Lloyd-Jones, and he spoke about Calvin's view of this. I went, of course, looked up Calvin. It's right there next to me. And um, Lloyd-Jones says, before he dis disagreed with Calvin, he says, you do know we're Protestant and we don't have a pope. And Calvin, you do Calvin no service if you make him the pope. So sometimes he's wrong, and I disagree with him here. He thought Paul was in some sort of a trance. He called it an ecstasy. We use the word differently than they used it. And so with Lloyd-Jones, I would say I, I did disagree with Calvin and some of the others. But as I say, they were across the board. Why does Paul so readily defend and pursue and praise the sovereign choices of God and then wheel about so profoundly and completely to this moment of seminal grief and self-loathing? And so the reader is left to wonder, does Paul really wish himself accursed? Does his salvation really give him a great cause to grieve and to sorrow over how things turned out? Does he waver back and forth from triumphant, more than conqueror status to this broken, grief-stricken position? He says that he has continual grief. That sounds unyielding to me. That sounds like a grief that won't quit. It sounds unrelenting. So the reader's left to wonder, what's his meaning in all this emotional fluctuation? Friends, don't forget, we spoke about this Thursday night, don't forget when you come into the faith to bring your emotions with you. You've got to retrain them. But they help us worship. They help us in our zeal. They help us get through life. In fact, they're the power behind our thoughts. So some believe that he's taking an oath here because he calls his conscience as witness. He calls the Holy Spirit as witness. Like he's taking an oath. He says, I am not lying. I speak the truth in Christ. He leaves no outlet but to take him at his word. In all of his talk about predestination, this Jewish apostle, this Pharisee of Pharisees, wonders where his countrymen fit into the whole scheme of divine ushering of the saints into the presence of God. Where are they? First they killed Christ. Then I killed them. And then I got called, and they're still out there denying Christ. And it grieves them in his spirit. If God's plan is one continual guided tour from antiquity to apocalypse, then what, where are the Jews? That would have made a good sermon title. Where are the Jews? Instead, I entitled it, My Countrymen According to the Flesh. Do you know we all have countrymen according to the flesh? I'm going to get to that. If the covenants began with the Jews, why does it seem that it's not ending with them? And though this epistle, or this apostle rather, is a new creation in Christ, though he's been given greater revelation of God's purposes than any other man of his time, perhaps of all time, though he's attached to a new and wonderful fellowship of brothers and sisters, he laments that nagging feeling in his heart that he's leaving his former brethren behind. And he's well aware of the fate of, the fate rather, of all those who deny Christ. He's not just leaving them behind, he's leaving them to hell. And he grieves it. 
So we're left to ask, is there a residual sadness in this whole business of election? You know, it's a really controversial subject. People don't like it. When you first come to it, but I think particularly as, Amer- as an American, we, it's just not fair. Is there a sadness in this whole business of election, in this whole process of predestination? And if we're to revel in our good fortune of being among the elect, is there in that something of which to sorrow over? Well, obviously there is. Now, I have an illustration, as you might have imagined. Preachers go through their life thinking of illustrations. So imagine this scenario, what it must be like to be in a company of soldiers, Captain, who set out on a dangerous mission. Their lives are in constant danger. They're in so much danger they can't even reasonably expect to return. And then the suddenness of the enemy strikes. The whole company of comrades are bloodied and killed in an instant. And yet when their bodies are discovered by their other comrades in arms, they find one of them alive. And not only alive, but he's able to be fully revived. He's able to return to full health and vigor. The destruction of the, energy of the enemy missed him somehow. Would there not be in that same person these twin feelings of praise and regret? Could the survivor escape the dual feeling of reveling in the miracle of life and the agony of despair over the gruesome specter of death? Wouldn't they both happen at the same time? Would not tears of joy and tears of grief roll down the same cheeks at the same time? Would he not look into the eyes of his wife and children and reach to embrace them with his two strong, intact arms, and at the same time grovel and despair over the decimated limbs and ligaments of his fallen brothers who would never know such joy again. That's what this is like. That's what election is like. And that's why people don't like it. They know it's true intellectually, but they can't grasp it emotionally. It just doesn't seem right to them. That's what the Arminian faction in the church today is trying so heartily to avoid explaining. Now, if you don't know what the Arminian faction is or what I mean by Arminianism, you you have to come to Thursday night Bible study um, or you have to come in the future weeks when we speak of it after the the first session of Sunday morning is over and, and we're in the luncheon session or you just have to wait till we get to that, which we probably will in this chapter. But that's a name of a, of a soteriology. It's the name of a theory of salvation. It's called Arminian. It's named after a man, a theologian, a great man named Arminius. And when I say the Arminian faction, don't get the wrong idea. That's the biggest faction in the church today. The biggest faction in the church today rejects Romans chapter 8. They wouldn't say it that way, but I can't see there's any other way of saying it. This unconditional election, this predestination is all too troublesome a doctrine. And it is troublesome. Make no mistake, it's, it's all too humanly impossible to rectify with the love of God. So they create, you ready for a new word? A theodicy. It's not a made-up word, it's a real word. They create a theodicy. What's a theodicy? Am I the last one in the world that reads poetry? You read poetry? Good girl. Do you memorize it, though? 
Can you stand up and for eight hours in a row recite poems from Frost and Longfellow and Browning and Shakespeare? Then you're not in the club. No, just kidding. Paradise Lost, great epic poem written by none other than John Milton, a great Puritan poet. And he put to poetry, to an epic poem, the whole scenario of Adam eating of the forbidden fruit in the garden and what happened. It's an awesome work. But what he says at the beginning, he calls the Holy Spirit his muse. The, the, the ancients, the pagans, had a muse, like a spirit that spoke to them. But for the Puritan, it was the Holy Spirit was his muse. And he asks him to assist him in his task of justifying the ways of God to men. That's what he says. You know, when that phrase came into my mind, th this is how your mind works when you're a preacher. I said, a theodicy. That's justifying the ways of God to men. I immediately thought it was a, a verse of Scripture. And I had to really go back in my head and say, no, no, no. It's a verse from Milton. A theodicy is a justifying. It's a defending of the attributes and purposes of God. That's what it is. It's a theory. It's a way of defending God. It, it seems that Sometimes our tender, finite human consciences cannot grasp the ways of God. I mean, it's it, only natural that it would be that way. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. We want him to be a God of love. We want him to be a fair and a merciful deity. And so he is. But we cannot get past our own feelings of foul play in the election controversy, so we seek out a way to justify his ways to men. How can we make it seem loving that he left some of them out? Now, before I get there, let me just tell you, you don't have to defend the ways of God. He doesn't. Our theodicy, friends, our justifying of God's ways, comes from our human instinct to protect the image of God from scandalous charges. And for the Arminian, predestination is a scandalous charge. And so they just simply deny it. They deny it on a glandular level. They have to be as intellectually as perceptive as we are. One of the great minds of the Christian world was C.S. Lewis. I don't think anyone disputes that, and he was an Arminian. So they stand on their imagination that the God that they love is, is better than that. He's better than being a predestinating God. They conceive a better God than the one we have. See, that's the danger when you don't just take God at his word. When you look at him through this little human lens. We have a bigger lens. It's called the scripture. And when you look at the world and God through the lens of scripture, it clarifies what the things really are that you couldn't see when you didn't look through the lens. Because then you're just looking through the lens of your emotions and your conclusions. Did you ever hear the old... Buddhist proverb about the five blind men describing an elephant. I've used it before. Five blind men are all feeling an, element, uh, an elephant, and the one in the middle says, the elephant is a wall. And the one in, at the leg says, no, no, the elephant is a pillar. And the one at the trunk head, no, the elephant is a rope. You know, they each have their view now. If they put it all together, because they weren't looking through a lens that would show the whole being. And sometimes I think we're stuck in that. And so they stand on their imagination that the God they love is better than that. It's like when I told my Catholic friend that Jesus whipped the money changers and she said, not the Jesus I know. You'd think she'd know because they have the stations of the cross, you know, in all the churches, right, in relief sculpture. 
you think she would have picked up on it. But um, friends, I've actually heard men say, I could not worship a God who chooses some over others. Have you ever heard that? A God who determines outcomes before the race begins. A God who claims to have hated Esau. He says it in this chapter. Esau, I have hated. Now I have to deal with that when we get there. Let me say at this juncture that that is not what Paul is doing. Paul's not apologizing for predestination. Make no mistake, that's not what he's doing. If he was doing that, the book would have ended here. But when you get to chapter 9, you're going to see he's not apologizing for predestination. He's heralding election as a great divine virtue and the prerogative of the Almighty. Friends, apart from predestination, sovereignty is not sovereign, and the Almighty is just mighty. He's not almighty, right? Don't strip him of the all. No, what Paul does is to teach the absolute nature of predestination without apology. But the, the doctrine cannot keep his tender human affections from looking back upon his Jewish brethren who have denied their Messiah. Friends, you wouldn't want an apostle who didn't feel your pain. You want him to be both. You want him to be intellectually smarter than you and emotionally more loving than you. You want him to surpass you in these areas, and so he does. But he feels in his heart for the fate of his Jewish brethren who have denied their Messiah because he knows the price of their denial. Whoever denies me before men, Jesus said, I'll also deny him before my Father in heaven. Friends, the fact of predestination can hardly be denied given the prevalence of the doctrine in Holy Writ. Uh, It's not just here. It's all throughout the scriptures. I mean, it begins with Adam. Did Adam choose to be brought into life? Did anybody? God's totally in charge. He chose you. He chose when and where you'd be born. He chose what parents you'd be born to and what parents they'd be born to. How can you think that God is not planning all this? The fact of predestination can hardly be denied given the prevalence of the doctrine throughout the scriptures. To the Ephesians, he wrote this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? The good pleasure of his will. Not the good behavior of the elect, but the good pleasure of his will. In fact, sometimes he chose the elect in spite of the bad behavior of the elect. Read your scriptures. The scriptures doesn't hide the sins of the elect. It puts them right out there. It goes on. In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to what? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does that mean? It means cauterized. It means burnt right in. Can't escape it. You're melted to the Holy Spirit. You're welded to him is what it means. The Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Friends, we, I, I love the nickname the elect, but recognize we are the purchased possession of God. He bought us back. That's the very word exagorazo, which is redemption. He bought us back at a price. We are the purchased possession. Can you imagine telling that car you purchased that it purchased itself? We're a purchased possession. We're a thing that God owns because he paid for you. To the praise of his glory. All of it to the praise of his glory. 
not to apologize for this one shortcoming in an otherwise great God. And so the doctrine is one of the most clearly stated truths of Scripture, but then there's this whole issue of fairness. What about the fairness doctrine? <laughs> in fact, the apostle will anticipate this longing. He knows we're, we're all thinking, all right, we're chosen, but it doesn't go so well for those that weren't. He knows we're thinking that. So he offers one of his wonderful, nagging, rhetorical questions. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Our um, Arminian brethren would ask it this way. Is there unfairness with God? Are some chosen and some condemned even before the race begins? The difference between the longing of Paul and the theodicy of the Arminian is in the answer. The Arminian answers, there is no such doctrine as eternal, as unconditional election. The apostle answers, who are you to answer back to God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is No. Or rather, yes, the, the, the potter does have the power. If he wants to make one vessel, take the same lump, lump of clay, separate it, make a vessel here for drinking out of here, and a, and a spittoon out of this piece, he can do it. I could have said something other than spittoon, but it is, of course, Sunday morning. The, the, the gospel goes there. It's not a joke. <laughs> um, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Or will, this, or will the thing formed say, seems kind of unfair? I'm here to tell you that that quandary is the place where Paul is at the, at the moment his quill scratched the verses onto that parchment. As he did it, he thought, but what about them? He's just reveled with his new brothers and sisters. Friends, have you thought about that? You may come from the greatest family on earth, and you might find that when you become a Christian, you go into a church of uh, the foolish things that are confounding the wise. And that's your real family. And the other one is not. It's kind of amazing. Paul, it seems, was from a great family who purchased citizenship for him in the Roman Empire, which cost money. He wasn't an illegal alien. He paid for his. He's just reveled with his new brothers and sisters. He's just proven beyond the shadow of doubt that God is good and glorious and merciful and all-knowing and that we are the joyful recipients of his blessing, even life everlasting. What a blessing. Talk about blessings. Life everlasting? Without any of the problems and pitfalls of this life? We revel in the reality that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I would suggest that though we do not choose to question the purposes of God in election, that we, like Paul, may still feel the dual weight of being saved and seeing others lost. If we're not feeling what the apostle is feeling in these seemingly contradictory sentiments, we must be left to wonder if there is any love in us at all. Is not this very longing the whole position of missions and missionaries? Isn't that the heart of the missionary? He longs for his perishing brethren to be saved. It's the heart of the missionary, and Paul was, to this day, I think, has to be considered the greatest of missionaries. In 10 years, he established the church. Not just call people to Christ individually. He established the church on three continents in a mere 10 years and could speak as if his work on earth was done. 
Are we those who simply revel that we got ours? Or have we been given our heart of flesh that even though we've been blessed, we long for the blessing of our natural family members? That's what this is about. Just as this Jewish apostle longs for his blind and perishing Jewish brethren. It's not difficult to see, is it, why he went here? Friends, I'm a member of a family. That didn't stop when I became a Christian. Like Lot, I was surgically removed out of my family. Remember Lot? It's raining fire and sulfur from the sky, and God took Lot out. And he didn't even bring his wife all the way. I've been surgically removed from among them. I was saved out of a company of close friends. But when I came to Christ with all my heart and soul, I found that I could not bring them with me. I found that I could not stay with them either. And neither could Paul. But they're no less dear to us, and so he grieves for them. Now, as far as this, I wish that I myself were a curse from Christ business, I think the beloved commentators are too caught up in academic solutions. They need to read more poetry. They need to read things that are written from the heart and not just from the mind to pick up on what's going on here. You know, when I say that, I'm not belittling anything about the Scripture. Jesus spoke almost exclusively in non-literal methods and meters. He used parables. And even when he wasn't using parables, just in, just in sermons, he used figurative language and you had to figure it out. I am the door. Tear down this temple. You're not a temple, you're a man. You're not a door, you're a preacher. I am the true vine, you're not a vine. I mean, friends, get over this literal thing about the word of God. It very seldom is literal where it's really important. So consider at least that Paul's not literally saying that he wishes he was accursed from Christ, stomping his feet saying, if they can't come with me, I'm not going. That's not what he's doing here. You know, we were studying Ephesians chapter 1 for the last few weeks in the Bible study, and we came to this verse in chapter 18, and I, and I love this verse, um, and it uses the phrase, the eyes of the heart. Consider the eyes of your heart. Now, some of your Bibles will say the eyes of your understanding, but I looked it up, and it's ophthalmos. An, op- an ophthalmologist is an eye doctor, an ophthalmos is an eye, and cardius is a heart. You can say understanding, oh, blessed translator, if you want, but cardius is a heart. There's no other way of taking it. It's an ophthalmos cardius. It's the eyes of your heart. And we know the heart is not a place for seeing. It's a place for feeling. And sometimes we have to feel our way through some of these things. This is not a place for literal examination. It's not a place for mere intellectual inspection. It's a matter of the heart, friends, and heart issues are the most perplexing of all. Paul's heart is the heart of Moses, who spoke similar things to the Lord. Do you remember this? He went up on the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments, he comes down, and what are they doing? They melted all their jewelry down into an idol, a calf of gold, and they're on their knees worshiping the damn thing. Moses smashes the tablets, and God's angry with him, and the Lord says he will not forgive them. And Moses pleads for the Lord for forgiveness, not for himself, Because he was with the Lord when the children of Israel were involved in idolatry. He sought forgiveness for them. And this is what he said to God. If you will not forgive their sins, I pray pray blot me out of your book, which you have written. (laughs) These men scare me sometimes. I would never dare to say that to the Lord. 
I don't even like to say the foolishness of preaching or the foolishness of the message, which Paul does all the time. But if you can't feel the prophet's pain in the moment, if all you can do is take a concrete, literal view of the exchange, I fear you miss the moment for the message. God doesn't take them at their word. We know for a fact he doesn't because Moses was there on the Mount of Transfiguration in full glory in a glorified state. So God didn't say, oh, you want to go out? All right, the, the, the exits are clearly marked. Get out of here. He didn't take them at their word because they didn't mean it and he knew it. And we have to know it. Both are with God to this day. And so we must at the same time hear their word but feel their pain. Hear their word and feel their pain. I assure you, that's what God did with them. Can you imagine if God just zapped the Israelites out of existence? What would Moses do? You called me out here. You've been feeding me with nothing but manna. I had a great people that we called out of Egypt. And you zapped them? They're gone? Now what do I do? Go back to Midian and ten sheep? No, God wanted to bring the apostle. He wanted to bring Moses to that place of longing in their heart for their brethren. That's as much a part of your Christianity as loving God. Make no mistake about that. The first commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's all they're doing. And they were both in a special place with God, and they took some liberties I don't think I would advise you to take. Lloyd-Jones says it this way, Such an intense concern for the glory of God and for the souls of men that they feel it to this extent, that they come nearest of all to that mind which was in Christ Jesus when he gave himself as an offering for sin that others might be saved. You know, I was thinking as they said those words to God, it's like a prayer. I mean, God's not right there, right? Face to face. When, they, when Moses or Paul said those words, I have to imagine the Holy Spirit interceded for them with groanings that could not be uttered, perfecting their prayers, don't you think? The Holy Spirit's like, oh, Father, he doesn't mean it. This is what he'd like to say. And then he's the Holy Spirit's over here. <laughs> don't push it. It's this very thing, this seeming dichotomy that we feel when we meditate on the broken body and spilled blood of Christ. We know all about this. We're sorrowful that he died, but we're joyous that he died for us, right? He died instead of us. We're sorrowful that he died, but we're joyful that he died for us. And I assure you that Paul's not yet done with this human sentiment. And so as far as we've seen, he brings it up again in chapter 10. And still, he's not done with it. Listen to what he says in chapter 11. By the way, 9, 10, and 11 are be taken as sort of a unit, even though we plod through it for understanding. But he writes this, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. For God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleaded with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Do you remember that incident? And what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That's God's explanation to his prophet Elijah. You know, when we talk about election, invariably people will bring up John 3.16. We say, oh no, God, Jesus died, you know, limited atonement. Jesus only died for certain people. 
Now, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I'm going to tell you how to answer that. Don't ever forget it. You say to the Christian, did God so love the world in Noah's time? Did God love the world in Noah's time? Or did he hate the world? Obviously, he loved the world, and he saved it, but he did it his own way. And many people perish in the saving of the world. And if you just go two verses beyond John 3.16, he says that very thing. Those who do not believe in me are condemned already. No, God so loved the world, and he will save it, but he'll do it his way with a representative. He started, you know, God started the world three times. He had Adam and Eve, you had Noah and his unnamed wife, and you had Abraham and Sarah. He started the whole thing three times in the bosom of one family. No, he loved the world all right, but he saved it with a federal head, with a representative of the world he was trying to create. Verses 6 through 8, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. There's a doctrine for you. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. You know, I drive by these churches today, and there's all these signs about praying for Israel and all these things, which is fine with me. I love Israel. But I don't love Israel. I don't love the Israel. Israeli nation today because I think they're the people of God. I don't think it. I love them because they're a great sovereign capitalist nation that defends themselves and doesn't need anyone else to help them. They're a free nation. You can be a Palestinian and receive citizenship in Israel, but you can't be a Jew and receive citizenship in, in Palestine. No, they're a great, good, fair, democratic nation. He says, They're not all Israel that are of Israel, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. In other words, you misunderstood what Israel was all these time, all these years. He says, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Why? Ishmael is a son of Abraham as well, right? That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. That's self-explanatory. Those who are... The children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. I'll close with these thoughts. The apostle expresses a nostalgic remembrance of former things, of former understandings of former things. He has no intention of abandoning his purpose, which is to let the word of God and not the sentiments of man justify the ways of God to men. Defend God if you must. But he has no intention of defending himself or his ultimate purposes. God just declares. He doesn't have to sit you down and go, oh, no, let me, let me explain to you. This is, what I've, this is how I'm working it out. He, he doesn't tend to do that. We should keep in mind that this view that they are not all Israel who are of Israel is not a new teaching on the scene. Or do you not recall what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were Jewish. He said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? All these other good Jews were coming, right, being baptized, showing repentance to John. And he said to the leaders, who warned you? Who told you about our meeting? He said, all right, if you're going to come in, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And that's who you are. You're the stones he raised up. Jesus said the same thing. It's not new with Paul. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. If you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. But you do the deeds of your father. You are of your father, the devil. 
and the desires of your father you want to do. Abraham is your fleshly father, and Satan is your spiritual father, is what he's saying to them. And we do the works of our fathers. He had no compunction. He had nothing holding him back to saying, these sons of Abraham are not the chosen, because they're not all Israel who are of Israel. Neither are they all children, because they're the seed of Abraham. He makes that really very clear. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. That's Jesus' doctrine. So faith, it seems, friends, is a better pedigree than family when all is said and done. And the true sons of Israel are not family members of the same name. Rather, they're family members of the same faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Amen. Our Father, provide your spirit to help us through these troubling thoughts of the beloved apostle, O Lord. And let them give us wisdom and humility in the same package, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.